My friends, the second Bible reading before we hear the sermon is from Matthew chapter 11. This is the start of our new series tonight. So if we turn to Matthew chapter 11 and we'll read from 1 to 19. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. The good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what do you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what do you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not arisen, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say... He is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. This is the word of the Lord. Now friends, uh, spend a moment, mingle, grab an outline if you don't have one, and I'll call you back in a moment and we'll work through this passage. Okay, well we'll make a start. Now at our church we are committed to expounding the word of God, and so we uh, committed to working through chapters of the Bible, chapter by chapter. And, and often you come across passages where you're thinking, what, what is there to say about this? And so you're stumped. But yet, it is the Word of God. It is for our good. And so we preach about it and preach on it anyway. And so tonight we come to this passage, and I think we need God's help. I need God's help, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word will be true to us this evening. Help us to see what it is you want us to learn, how we are to respond to your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, have you heard of the catchphrase, there's no pleasing some people? Have you heard of that? There's no pleasing some people. Some people, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what they have, what they're experiencing in life, what, what their life is like, there's just no pleasing them. Do you know anyone like that? You know, the, the whiners and the whingers and the complainers, there's just no pleasing them. Well, there's this scene in a movie, Life of Brian by Monty, Monty Python. Yeah, I, I don't know if I want to recommend that movie, but anyway, 
we're in this movie, there is a scene where we meet such a person, where there's, there's no pleasing this person. Well, anyway, in this, in this scene, there's this one scene, there, there's a group of lepers. They're all begging and they're crying out, alms for the leper. But in amongst this group of leper, there is one guy who stands out. He's an ex-leper, which means he's no longer a leper. But he's also begging, he's crying out, he's he's crying out, spare a talent for for an old ex-leper. And and then Brian, this this guy, he walks past, and so he cries out to him, spare a talent for an old ex-leper. And and this ex-leper, he follows Brian along, He, he taunts him and and sort of mocks him and sort of begs. He's going relentlessly pursuing him. And so he continues to cry out, spare a talent for an old ex-leper. And then Brian, after a while, he's, he's being annoyed for a while, he realises, did you say ex-leper? This ex-leper, he says, yes, that's right, 16 years behind a veil and proud of it, sir. And then Brian, he says, well, what happened? He said, oh, cured, sir. Brian asks him, cured. And this ex-leper, he says, well, well yes, a, a miracle, sir. Bless you. He uses some you know, French word in there, but I won't say that. Who cured you? And so this ex-leper, he says, well, Jesus did. I was hopping around, minding my own business, not sure how a leper hops around anyway, and all of a sudden, he came. He cures me. Now, you expect this leper to be thrilled, to be overjoyed that he was cured of his leprosy. But instead, this was what he said. One minute, I'm a leper with a trade. That trade is begging. The next minute, my livelihood's gone. Not so much as a buy, you leave, you're cured, mate, and another French word, you do good up. And so Brian said, well, why don't you go and tell him that you want to be a leper again? And so this ex-leper, he says, oh, yeah, I could do that, I suppose. I could do that. What I was thinking was, I was going to ask him if he could make me lame in one leg during the middle of the week. You know, just, just something so that I can continue begging. But not leprosy, you know, which is a pain in some place. <laughs> but, uh, which I won't say, but then. <laughs> and so Brian, this guy walking along, is pretty annoyed by this lep- ex-leper. He, he does drop a coin in his, into his cup. And then this lex- lex- ex-leper... He's shocked. He looked. He saw half a denarii for my French word life story. And Brian goes on and finishes off saying, there's no pleasing some people. There's just no pleasing. He was a, a leper. He was healed. He was cured. Leprosy is gone, but he's not happy. He can't beg anymore. No one wants to give to him. But of course, that's not a true story. It's only a, a story, a scene out of a movie. But I do wonder whether there is some truth in this type of attitude towards life that there's just no pleasing some people. But I also wonder whether there's more truth in this type of attitude towards Jesus, that there's just no pleasing some people. And so as we start in this section of Matthew, in this series, we're going to see rising opposition against Jesus. People are not liking Jesus. People are not being not pleased by Jesus. Jesus is doing, not doing what they're expecting. And so we're starting on the new series. It's our, in fact, fourth mini-series in the study of Matthew. We started two years ago. This is our fourth one. Now, just to put this passage in the context of the whole of, whole of Matthew, let me remind you, two years ago, if you remember, we did Matthew chapter 1 to 4. 
And in chapter 1 to 4, Jesus revealed his person. He is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the King. And then after that we did Matthew 5 to 7. And in 5 to 7, Jesus revealed his principles. That was the Sermon on the Mount. What it meant to enter, to belong and to live in the Kingdom of God. That was our second. In our third series, which we did last year, Matthew 8 to 10, Jesus revealed his power. He went around displaying his power in healing, in casting out demons, in calming a storm, in raising the dead, in forgiving sins. That was the previous series. And now today we start Matthew 11 to 13. And what we see in this series is, is that there is rising opposition to who Jesus is, despite what he's done. And he's going on preaching, teaching, exposing and, and revealing more of the kingdom of God. And so that's what we see at the very first verse. So have your Bibles open. We'll work through this chapter. Chapter 11, verse 1. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in the towns of Galilee. That's why Jesus came, to proclaim the word of God, to reveal the kingdom of God. He was here, present in his teaching and in his miracles. But as we'll see, in, even in this passage, There's just no pleasing some people. And who's not pleased in our passage? Well, John the Baptist, the very cousin of Jesus, the forerunner of Jesus, the herald. He's not pleased with Jesus. And in our passage, he, in a sense, gives his assessment of Jesus. But you see, this should be quite a shock, if you think about it, that John the Baptist would give this this assessment of Jesus. I mean, you can just imagine John the Baptist from a young age hearing from his mother Elizabeth. His mother saying to him, John, you know your cousin Jesus, your younger cousin Jesus? He's after you, but he's actually greater than you. He's your Lord. He's our Lord. You can just imagine him hearing that all the time. Jesus is younger than me, but greater than me. Not sure what that would have done for his self-esteem. But whether that happened or not, John did know his purpose for coming. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the herald of the kingdom. And so he knew his place. And so when he went baptising, and when Jesus came along to be baptised by him, he didn't say, look at my little cousin. He's coming to steal my thunder again. He didn't say that, did he? Let's look at Matthew chapter 3, our first reading. What did he say? Chapter 3, verse 11. He said, I baptise you with water for repentance, But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so John, perhaps for most of his life, he recognised, he knew with complete confidence that Jesus Christ, his younger cousin, is in fact the Lord, the Messiah, the Christ. He knew that. He knew that all that time. And so it's strange that he would say this. It's strange that he would think Jesus is not meeting his expectations. And so what does he do? Well, he questions Jesus. Have a look at verse 2 now. Back to chapter 11, verse 2. We read this. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? I mean, this is John who, who knew Jesus, who knew that he was born of Mary, who was a virgin. Knew, knew that he came from God, knew that he was the Messiah, but now he's questioning, he's doubting, he's expressing his unbelief. Are you really the Christ? I'm not so certain that you are anymore, Jesus. You calm the storm, you heal people, but 
but I'm not seeing enough. That's not really enough for me to convince me. And so, in a sense, there's, there's no pleasing John here because he was expecting to see more from Jesus. He was expecting to see more from the Messiah. And so what was it that he was expecting? What did he want to see from Jesus? Well, we read that in our first reading. So let's again turn back to Matthew chapter 3. What did he want? Well, in chapter 3, he was quite clear there. He actually wants judgment. The coming of the Messiah to him meant judgment. Judgment was the foil. It was the day of judgment. Have a look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came to where he was baptising, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And then look at verse 10, judgment again. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment again. Look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning all the chaff, with unquenchable fire. This guy wanted judgment. So in his mind, the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Messiah, the one who will bring about the kingdom of God, meant judgment. It was the day of judgment, but he was not seeing that. Jesus was not meeting his expectations of that. It should have been judgment day. And so, in a sense, there's just no pleasing some people, and he, John, was not pleased by what he was seeing. So what did Jesus do? you punk cousin, you prophet, you, what's wrong with you? I am the Christ. Did Jesus do that? Well, no. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus instead tried to help John see that the things he was expecting to come with the Messiah was in fact happening. Not judgment. Judgment will come, John. It will come one day. But salvation first, the things that he was doing, the healings and all that, it was the dawning of the messianic age. All that Jesus was doing, that is the dawning. That is the signs you've been looking for. And so look at what Jesus says. Back to chapter 11 now, verse 4 and 5. Jesus says, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. You see, all these were signs that were attached with the coming of the Messiah. All these were signs that were attached with the coming of the Messianic age. And so Jesus was making clear to John, the signs you're after, they're here. You you can't see it. This is what you're seeing now. I am the Messiah. And now what Jesus does next is he places John into his place. You see, Jesus now makes clear to John, what's important, you see, it's not whether Jesus was meeting John's expectation of, of him, But rather, what was important was whether John was meeting Jesus' expectation of him. He he turns it around. Look at what Jesus says in verse 6. Jesus says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. He turns it around. What's important is not what you think about me. What's important is whether you stick with me. What's important is what you think about me. I'm the focus, John, not you. You are blessed if you stay with me, if you stick with me. And so what does Jesus do now? Well, what he goes on to do, he's, he, he reorders things. John made his assessment of Jesus. Are you really the Christ? Well, Jesus turns it around. Now he talks about John. Jesus now talks about John in a way that shows his importance, his place in relationship to Jesus. 
So have a look at verses 7 to 10. He turns to the crowd, he, he asks a few rhetorical questions. He says, what do you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what do you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what do you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And now comes the assessment of Jesus on John. Verse 11. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Isn't that strange that Jesus would say that about John? Why would Jesus say that? John was a prophet. Yes, we know that. John was the forerunner, the herald. We know that. But why would Jesus say that John was the greatest, born of women? Greatest, greater than all the prophets of the Old Testament. Greater than Elijah. Greater than uh, Isaiah. Greater than even Moses. How can Jesus say that? That's a huge claim on John, and, and especially given what John said about Jesus. We see the importance of John is in his relationship to Jesus. You see, of all the prophets in the Old Testament, all the, uh, in the Old Testament, all the prophets, and of all of them, it was this prophet who ended the whole era of Old Testament prophecies. It was this prophet who ended the whole era of Old Testament expectations and longings for the coming of the Messiah. Because it was this prophet, this prophet alone, who got to point out, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John got to do that. It was this prophet who got to witness with his very own eyes that this is the Messiah. That's why he's important. So Jesus says, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John. John has this unique place in salvation history, in being able to end the era of Old Testament prophets, but also to be the one that points out who the Christ is, who the Messiah is. And that was Jesus' assessment of John. Despite John's doubt, Jesus is saying, you are the messenger, you are the greatest because you're pointing to me. Well now in this passage, Jesus moves on now and he gives his assessment of that generation now. He's done John, now he's thinking about the generation listening. After all that Jesus has done, all the healings, all the miracles, you expect them to welcome Jesus with open arms. But Jesus now says they're grossly confused. They're not dancing to the music, they're not moving with the beat, they're not getting on with the times. Have a look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, saying, calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Do you get the image that is painted there? You see, instead of dancing at a wedding when the flute is played, these people are, are sad. They're, they're unhappy. They're depressed. You know, like hearing Celine Dion something, they should be happy, but they're, they're sad. Or instead of mourning at a funeral, when the dirge is sung, they're happy. They're not, they're not dancing with the music. They're not moving with the beat. And so no matter what John did, no matter what Jesus did, there was no pleasing that generation. And now look at the final two verses. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. 
The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So John to them was too holy. Jesus to them was too unholy. There's just no pleasing them. They were confused about Jesus and doesn't seem much has changed today. And so in a sense, by the end of this passage, it seems like there's no winning these people. There's no winning them over at all. No winning John, no winning that generation, no matter what Jesus did. The healings, the miracles, what did they end up doing? They arrested him, they flogged him and they crucified him. And so Jesus' assessment of that generation, they're confused, they're lost. They're not moving to the music, they're not moving with the beat. And so that's our passage, but we need to think about that. What what are the implications for us? We understand it, John, the greatest of the prophets, because he got to point out who the Messiah is. What's this passage to do with us? Well, let's think about that. If Jesus was to assess us today, assess this generation, assess us in here, what would Jesus say? Now, there's there's no pleasing some people, Are we one of those people? Are we one of those when it comes to Jesus? There's just no pleasing some people. It makes us question, are we a bit like John the Baptist here? Is Jesus really the king? Is Jesus really the king? And if he is the king, why is he allowing me to suffer the way I am? We can question like John the Baptist, can't we? If Jesus really is the king, why isn't he fixing up all my problems? all my health problems, all my relationship problems, if he is the king. If Jesus is the king, why isn't he doing something about my situation? If Jesus is the king, well, he's not really looking like a king to me. I wonder whether we can doubt like John the Baptist. Are we after more from Jesus than what we've already seen? Or are we like that generation Jesus spoke of there? God says, Jesus is the king. And we say, no, I'm the king. God says, Jesus is the saviour. And we say, no, we don't need a saviour. We dance to a different music. We move to a different beat. Our heart is not beating in line with the heart of God. Are we seeing Jesus as we're meant to? Or do we want more? And the reality is that if we want more than what we're seeing, we're making up our own Jesus. But are we seeing Jesus as we're meant to? But... Because you see, for those who do see Jesus as we're meant to, for those of us who, like in this story, dance with the music, move with the beat, have the right beat, beating our heart in in line with God's, we see Jesus as we're meant to, we follow Jesus as we must, he is king. If you think about that, that's the greatest comfort of all. There's no more that we need. He is king, he is lord of all, that's the greatest comfort of all. And so even in our suffering, we don't need to think, don't need to see more of you, Jesus. He's still king, he's lord over that as well. When we're struggling, we don't need to ask, is there more of Jesus that I must find out? Or he's lord over that, he is king. When I'm struggling, when things are not going well, must I be questioning, like John, is there more of Jesus that I have not yet discovered? No, he is king already. We've seen him. But notice what Jesus says about those who see Jesus as he really is. Notice what Jesus says about those who who trust in him as they must. 
Look at, look at chapter 11, verse 11 again. What did Jesus say about those who do see Jesus as the king? He says, I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, this is the bit we didn't look at before. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, what does that mean? There's, there's in fact, someone who is greater than John the Baptist. We've already read John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets. The greatest. But yet the least is greater than he. What does that mean? What Jesus is saying there is, as great as John the Baptist was, as the greatest of the prophets, as privileged John the Baptist was as the greatest of the prophets who pointed out the Messiah, the least in the kingdom, that is, those who belong in the kingdom, are considered greater than John, more privileged than John. Who are they? Well, they are those who belong to the kingdom. Normal, ordinary, Bible-believing Christians. Normal, ordinary, Jesus-following Christians. Now, why would... Jesus said the least in the kingdom will be greater than John. Well, think about the reality. You see, what we know today, what you see today, John did not get to see. We get to see the full extent of God's love for us. The full extent of God's love that Jesus went to the cross for us. John died before that. He did not get to see that. And we get to know more than what John got to know. We got to know God's salvation plan. Fulfilled in Jesus. He died for us, went to the cross for us, was raised back to life again. John died before that. He did not get to see that. We get the full picture and not only that, we can do more than what John got to do. He got to point out the Messiah. But we not only get to point out the Messiah, but we get to proclaim that this Messiah came, died for us and was raised back to life to give us eternal life. And so this passage, quite profound in fact, you who are least in the kingdom, greater than John the Baptist, because we see what God has done for us in Christ. And so that's Jesus' assessment of us. If we have ears to hear as we read, if we dance with the music, if we are beating along with the heart of God, if we see Christ as he is, the king, and as we follow him as we must. Christ is king, the greatest comfort of all. Now, I'm not king, you're not king, and that's great. Christ is king. He is our Lord and he is him we trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege that you will make all this known to us. That though we are least in the kingdom, we have seen your full plan of salvation fulfilled in your son, Jesus Christ. And so help us to see Christ as he is, the king. And help us follow him as we must our King. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.